I'm Beth Bennett. And I'm Angel Shang. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, August 25th, 2020. Hey, Angel, you know that CU opened this week for in-person classes, right? Yeah, we've all seen students returning this week in Boulder. This does raise some questions. And today, we'll hear more about that. We'll feature Sarah Sawyer. The Sawyer Lab has created an ultra-fast COVID-19 test. A COVID test with a fast turnaround is certainly a game-changer. Would now be a good time to bring up the big spike in cases we saw last spring after the CU graduation parties? Hold that thought. I'm Beth Bennett, and you're tuned to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. People are, of course, concerned about lowering infection rates from the coronavirus that we all know now as COVID-19. Concerns now focus on whether universities will hold classes online only or open up for in-person classes. Many will not reopen. Many have backpedaled from opening and are now going to online classes only. CU Boulder wants to stay open. The Boulder campus has done a lot of innovative work over the summer to prepare for the influx of students. For the next few weeks, we're going to highlight their science explanations about how they've been preparing. Each week, we'll bring an update of COVID cases on campus and how CU Boulder is responding. So if classes are still open or CU is gone to online classes only, where the spikes are coming from, if there are any, that sort of thing. Time will tell. And of course, there will be small flare-ups at a minimum. The questions are, of course, will the quarantining be effective? What about off-site um, gatherings and parties? Will those be minimized voluntarily? Campuses are traditionally not set up to be policed in this way, so how will any growing number of cases be contained? Some of the containment strategies do, in a traditional sense, begin to infringe on what we know as personal liberties and privacy issues. And finally, the college-age brain is, shall we say, not notable for its risk aversiveness. And in fact, I heard a college student who was complaining about being expected to be responsible. But maybe CU will succeed, and we'll learn something from how they do it that we can use to help with testing the entire Boulder community, opening up schools and restaurants. And you, the listener, can learn about all this right now, too. Today's show will feature CU scientists who have been giving info webinars about how they're working to keep CU open. Well, success would be a wonderful thing for the whole community, and so we are all rooting for this. To find those webinars yourself, you can Google CU COVID Research Solutions. And we'll provide a link to those webinars on our website, howonearthradio.org. In the weeks up ahead, we'll provide highlights and updates, along with conversations from the webinars. So without further ado, here's Shelley Schlender to launch our mini-series on COVID on campus. I'm Shelley Schlender. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today, we're looking at how CU Boulder wants to use innovative testing to keep COVID cases down and to keep CU Boulder's dorms and in-person classes open. Can CU Boulder succeed without causing COVID cases in Boulder to spike, or will the city, or CU itself, close the campus down? And if so, when? 
Now let's listen to some excerpts from the webinar about how CU Boulder is planning to use innovative testing strategies to test more people and test them fast. Sarah Sawyer is a professor of molecular, cellular, and developmental biology. Sawyer is concerned about the current COVID virus tests, called PCR tests. These PCR tests require an uncomfortable sample taken with a nose swab. There's a shortage of PCR testing labs and supplies. Sometimes it takes two weeks to get test results back from a PCR test. That's why Sarah Sawyer's team has developed an ultra-fast spit test. The ultra-fast spit test gives results in less than an hour. Now from the CU webinar series that you can listen to in detail yourself, here's Sarah Sawyer. The PCR test requires a PCR machine. So it means that wherever you get your sample taken, your swab of any variety, or nowadays even a saliva sample, that get, needs to get sent to one of a few labs that can analyze it. I know facilities that have thousands of samples backed up in cold rooms just waiting to be analyzed. The problem is the special machinery required and thus the special laboratories that have that machinery that can process. So we came up with a very simple test that just involves spitting in a tube adding some chemicals, and then 45 minutes later, that tube pops bright yellow if you have coronavirus genome in your saliva. So we don't need any fancy equipment, and in fact, we can conduct this test with kitchen equipment. You're hearing Sarah Sawyer talking on the CU Boulder COVID Research Solutions webinar. Sawyer is talking about how her ultra-fast COVID spit test is designed to screen students moving into CU dorms so that there's a way to tell if they have COVID, even if they are symptom-free. These incoming students are also being tested with the more standard PCR COVID test. We're partnering with Wardenburg. Wardenburg will continue to be the place where six students go. But the real challenge for us as a community is we know that in this age group, there are a significant number of people that will get infected and not have symptoms or have very mild symptoms. How are we going to monitor this healthy crew and find the needle in the haystack that's actually carrying that virus in their body and giving it to others? That is a proposition where you're testing healthy people, not people that know they have a problem, which we will send to Wardenburg. But we're employing our rapid, what we call a LAMP test on the student population. It turns out this is going to be one of the first places in the world where this type of test has been employed and where mass screening of healthy people is being undertaken. And that's really because finally regulatory issues loosened up to the point where we could provide these tests at least where the stakes are relatively low in people that don't have symptoms. And so that opening of the regulatory landscape allowed me and my group and a whole bunch of molecular biology PhDs that luckily we have on our campus to step forward and undertake the task of trying to survey the healthy community at CU Boulder using this test for a rapid turnaround result that will probably catch most of them. And so um, we're hoping that putting in that effort will make the whole semester go better and affect the community less and everything else that follows. Now here's more from Sarah Sawyer as she talks about what the scientists anticipated they would do during CU Boulder's move-in week, which happened last week. We are prepared in one week's time next week to test 8,000 students each with two tests. It's a remarkable undertaking and also experiment because I don't think it's ever been done in science that you test 
in this pandemic, a single person with two tests at the same time and really understand how they compare to each other. That's going to help us design our strategy for the rest of the semester. But I just want to say our theory is if we can keep any infected kids from ever in stepping into the dorm on the first day, we think the returns on that will be huge because every transmission chain that they may have started will now not start and our whole community and our whole semester will go better. So it is unbelievable the amount of time this summer we've spent planning this testing concept so that we can start off the semester as strongly as possible. Our undergraduate EMT crew who all have certifications as EMTs, they're just going to guide people through the spitting in the tube part just to you know provide assistance and guidance in that process and then we have our PhD level scientists who are one building over and they've set up many stations to run this test in parallel and all those saliva samples will be brought over and run by these scientists. These scientists have trained for a decade or more in these skills and I think it's thrilling for them and a little bit scary too to be honest but all kinds of emotions to be able to try to make a difference in this way and to pitch in in this project. They're all volunteers. We didn't require that anybody participate. I'm Shelley Schlender for How on Earth. Up next, CU Boulder scientist Sari Sawyer will explain why even the most sensitive FDA-approved COVID tests have a hard time spotting COVID-19. She'll also explain what scientists are trying to do about it. You know, when we breathe in a respiratory virus like SARS-CoV-2, They say that on average, there's five days before you get your first symptom. What's happening during those five days? Well, generally that virus is lodging at the back of your throat and beginning its replication, so making more copies. That's why often with respiratory viruses, your first symptom will be a sore throat. You wake up in the morning, you're like, what's that tingle I feel in my throat? And then you don't, it's another day or maybe two before you start having those big symptoms. So if you think about a nasal swab, if I have you, rub a Q-tip in your nose, and it never touches that virus back there, you're going to get a false negative no matter what test you use. There's nothing you can do about that. All the talk about false negatives and you being told that you don't have coronavirus and then two days later you get a test and you do, a lot of it has to do with the natural disease progression of this virus and the fact that the minute you breathe in one virion, it's not systemically throughout your body and easy to just assess with any type of sample that you take. With our LAMP test, we also have false negatives the same way other tests do for that, for that reason. Mm-hmm. And then further, we know that people that are on the tail end of infection tend to continue to shed viral genomes, but most of the time they're no longer infectious. So they have very low levels of viral genome that we think is just sort of damage to tissue, sort of repairing itself after this infection, but there's no infectious virions anywhere. My test is usually not sensitive enough to pick up people in those very low levels of infection at the end of disease progression. And possibly there's a very small window of of maybe a few hours even at the beginning where you're at those same virus levels. Could be infectious, but the test won't pick it up. What we can say is that the test is pretty good. I'm not going to put numbers on it because I don't think our human testing is to the level yet where we can say that definitively, but as good as gold standard tests at picking up the most infected people that are causing most of the infections. And that's the important part. That's CU Boulder scientist Sarah Sawyer talking about COVID-19 testing 
at the dorms at CU Boulder. I'm Shelley Schlender. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today we're sharing excerpts from a CU Boulder webinar about how the university is striving to use testing to identify COVID-19 cases among students before it spreads. We've been focusing on Sawyer's ultra-fast COVID-19 screening test. It's a spit test that gives results in under an hour. CU has another innovative way to test for COVID at the CU Boulder dorms. It's basically a test to see if anyone at the dorm is infected with COVID-19. The test happens automatically. It doesn't even require spitting into a tube. That's because it's a testing machine that takes samples of the sewage leaving the dorm. Creston Mansfeld is a professor in CU's environmental engineering program. He has placed sewage sampling machines connected to sewer manholes in 23 locations, all linked to CU residence halls and dorms. Now here's an excerpt from the CU Boulder webinar series. It features Creston Mansfeld wearing a face mask, standing next to a very boxy-looking machine that has a tube that goes down into a manhole near a CU Boulder dorm. Here's Creston Mansfeld explaining why sampling sewage for COVID-19 can be an early warning system that alerts about COVID before there are other symptoms. Being able to monitor what we actually flush down the toilet actually provides a biological signal. This is actually an early warning indicator is that they actually have found that it's about a five to seven day lead of what you would actually see of somebody going to a hospital in order to get uh, medical assistance. So this information is really designed to be a lead warning indicator and also where additional resources can be deployed on campus. What we're doing at CU Boulder, with our sites on average, we're about 200 to 400 people per sample location. Along the front range, there's been a consortia of wastewater treatment plants. So at the end of all these sewer pipes, that are sharing information and also sharing a testing network that is being run up at Colorado State University to actually see what the community level spread is when you're looking at much more about 30 to 100,000 people per single sampling location. Preston Mansfeld is pointing out that front range cities are also testing sewage for COVID-19, but they're doing it at the sewage treatment plant for huge chunks of people. 30,000 to 100,000 people, basically. And they're doing it so that they have a few extra days to get ready. You see, if they find a spike of COVID virus in the sewage, they can be a little more ready for a spike in emergency room visits in a few days. In contrast, the CU Boulder testing plan identifies small enough groups, say 200 people in a dorm, so that it might be possible to do additional testing of that dorm and actually find a person with COVID-19 before that person even knows they're sick. Sarah Sawyer says this easier and earlier warning kind of screening test is very badly needed for COVID testing right now, basically across the world. Here's Sarah Sawyer. Let's take Creston. Let's say that he finds all of a sudden signals start to pop up in a certain residence hall. We can go and literally set up a tent in front of that residence hall. I could do it with screening tests. We're doing more quick and dirty, but very important piece of this, or Wardenberg could do it, or both of us could do it, and rapidly try to identify who was the source of that viral genome that he found in the wastewater stream and get them in quarantine so that 
they don't affect other people and, um, around them. And then we have a stellar epidemiologist and, and his crew on campus, Matt McQueen. He will then implement the contact tracing part of this. And so I just want everyone to appreciate, like we all have day jobs, but we just sort of like stitched ourselves together and found out we can do this. And this kind of occupational screening with enough money and people can scale in a way that clinical diagnostics can't. We're all waiting for seven to 14 days sometimes for test results. There's a movement to, to sort of pressure these Quest labs and these other diagnostic labs, throw away samples that you don't analyze in two days. Because at least then some people will get meaningful results instead of you putting everybody at the back of the queue and nobody gets meaningful results because you're either like recovered or dead 14 days later when you get your results. So it's just a broken system. We have to start doing what we can outside of these bottleneck testing labs. That's Sarah Sawyer, Google CU Boulder COVID Research Solutions to find the webinar series. Sarah Sawyer has been talking about the kind of innovative testing strategies that CU Boulder is using in an effort to keep students healthy, keep CU dorms open, and keep CU classes open, all the while keeping the entire community of Boulder safer from COVID-19. So, how is the new plan for CU Boulder going? To find out more, the KGNU Science Show team spoke with Candace Smith. Smith is with CU Boulder's Strategic Media Relations team. Here's Candace Smith giving an update to How on Earth volunteers Beth Bennett and Angel Shang. Let's start with some numbers. How many students are enrolled this fall? We have more than 33,000 students who've enrolled for classes. 29,310 of those are enrolled for a one in-person or a hybrid course. Can you tell us how many are living on and off campus? Yeah, we, over the past week, we moved in 6,271 students as of Friday night. 26,000 are living somewhere off campus. Now, that could be in China, or it could be in Houston, or it could be in Boulder, or Broomfield. Do we know how many students living off campus are in the city of Boulder? Well, typically it's about 20 to 25,000 typically. We are actually working a communication went out to students Friday um, urging them to comply with public health safety guidance that we've sent to them multiple times, but also we've asked for their addresses, and that's going to help us with contact tracing as well. Now that you've mentioned contact tracing, let's jump into questions about detection and testing. You are requiring, or CU rather, is requiring that all the students living on campus be tested. How many have been tested so far and what the results have looked like? This past big move-in week, which was Monday through Friday, we conducted 2,425 tests. 16 were positive. And I do want to point out that more than half of students showed up with tests in hand. 
Is Wardenburg getting those test results back to people and students within the 24-hour period? Yes. What about the breakdown between the PCR test and the rapid test? Are you doing both of those types of tests? We've really been doing different layers of screening, diagnostic, and then beginning on Monday, we're really more moving into monitoring. In the first part of the week, we were using this RT-LAMP test, which was developed by our researchers at BioFrontiers. And then we were also doing the PRC test. We added in another test, an antigen test, that was also developed by some other researchers at BioFrontiers. And then beginning next week, we're doing the monitoring part, which will be some pop-up testing sites for students who are living in the residence halls. We're monitoring the wastewater at all the residence halls. And then we continue to do a lot of outreach to students on and, and especially off campus, just about their responsibility to help stop the spread of this. So wearing your face coverings, gatherings of no more than 10 people, you know, hygiene, and, you know, the physical distancing. Those are the main messages we've been pushing and also um, advising them that if they're not going to comply with this, we're going to move them through our student code of conduct and take action against them. For off-campus students, will they be able to use or will they be running through some of those pop-up tests or can they get tested voluntarily if they desire? Yes. The way our capacity is and resources right now, we can only do the on-campus students. We're working on a plan to expand that, so we're hoping by next week we will do some outreach to some off-campus as well, as, and that'll begin as early as next week. Well, the other thing that we're telling all of our students is if you have symptoms, if you've been in contact with somebody who's tested positive for COVID, or if you've been contacted through our contact tracing process, please go to Wardenburg Health Center and get a COVID test. So any students can do that. All of those on off-campus students, like the fraternities, the sororities, all of those students that I see running around the hill in large groups, there's really very little official monitoring. Like, they don't have to bring in test results to be admitted to classes. No, they don't. We've focused our efforts on campus and testing students living on campus. Like I said, we're aiming to scale that to some students living off campus as early as next week. And also, just a side note, the sororities have an affiliation with campuses, but none of the fraternities do. They operate completely separate, like a group house in Boulder. And I will say that we've partnered with the city and public health on this. Landlords in the city all got notices that said, if your tenants aren't complying with public health orders, we're going to take actions against you, the landlords. Okay, well, that's good to know. Candace, one final question. What about the graduate student population? Are they being tested also? We do have graduate students that live on campus, so same rules apply. If you're living in on-campus housing, you had to show up, test in hand, and if you didn't have a test in hand, then we immediately put you through a, a test. Some of them, some students never left. I mean, we had a lot of students that just didn't leave, and they continued to live in the community. It's all those, all the rules apply for all the students. 
you know, if you're on campus housing, you're going through a more stringent process. If you're off campus, we're just not at a level of capacity. We're limited on the resources. So that's why the focus has been on the on-campus students. I definitely understand that. And I think our listeners will appreciate the clarification. This has certainly been very helpful. And I want to thank you for taking your time today and giving us this clarification. I'm Shelley Schlender. I'm Shelley Zhang. You've just talked with Candace Smith of CU Boulder. Are you more optimistic or more pessimistic about whether CU Boulder can stay open? Well, the good news is that they only had 16 positive uh, test results out of the 2,420 tests they performed. So that's a 0.7% positive rate. And that's, that's pretty low. But of course, the vulnerability is that there are a total of 20,310 students enrolled for in-person or hybrid classes. And of those, 23,039 live somewhere in the community close enough to access the in-person class. And that's where I think we have some vulnerabilities because they are those students aren't required to be tested. It's such an interesting problem because it's so exciting, all of the innovative tests that CU Boulder is doing. But if they're only testing the people in the dorms, that's basically 20% of the population of students who will be on the campus on any given day. Correct. And that's where there's vulnerability because, as we know, there's a lot of mixing between on-campus and off-campus students. Parties are a big part of college life, even if there are kept under 10 people. Students do like to party, and can we blame them for that, or is that just being a student? Well, do we want to go down the road of what your college years were like, (laughs) or my college years were like? Certainly mixing with all sorts of people from all over the country and world was a part of uh, college life. So I don't know how you stop that in that population, especially a, a healthy young population that is probably asymptomatic. That's, that's a tricky part of this whole deal and a big difference between policy and enforcement. Well, let's look at some of the good news that we've had CU Boulder able to open up in some ways. Quietly, the laboratories opened up without much problem uh, with a lot of safety precautions last summer. They accomplished that. What if they can accomplish this? Or, well, what's your bet? Do you think they can do it? I think that if we could be assured that the careful testing that they're doing on the um, dormitory population can serve as a proxy of the CU community at whole, then my bet would be that we could even stay open until November. But I'm not sure that that serves as a proxy for the entire community. So in that case, my bet would be end of September, maybe early October. And you feel like you're being a little bit optimistic even then. (laughs) Well, there are other universities who have done this experiment ahead of CU. They started classes, uh, in-person classes, a few weeks ahead of CU, and they have run into problems. So that's why I am being a little bit pessimistic. Okay, on how on earth we're going to stay looking at this and see you, Boulder, is our Petri dish. We all have our hypotheses, and let's see which one wins. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. 
Our executive producer is Susan Moran. This week's show was produced and engineered by yours truly, Shelley Schlender, and engineered by Maeve Conran. Additional contributions by Beth Bennett and Angel Shang. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Raymond Scott and Beethoven. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Shelley Schlender.